0: All right, good morning. It's like it's been overcast for like a week. Feels like it, doesn't it? I think we got like two days of sunlight this last week and it was just overcast. I keep feeling like it's the evening all the time. Yeah, (laughs) let's know. Let's just know. So it's officially a new year. This is the first weekend of the new year. It's a new season and that's basically, you know, new season, new opportunities What you do with that opportunity or what you do with this year is entirely up to you. For me, I believe every new season, every uh, new day is another day that I get an opportunity to do something right. I've been doing stuff wrong a lot of my life. But every new season that that I know the Lord, I get this opportunity to do something right. I get an opportunity to be obedient before the Lord. Uh, In the book of Samuel, it's mentioned that God loves obedience more than sacrifice. Uh, which is to say, it's not, much, uh, it's not how much I can do uh, that will make this year a success. Let, me, let that sink in. It's not how much I can do this year that will make it a success. It's how much I listen and then do what I've been told that will make it a success. That's a big difference between a lot of stuff, I think. I think a lot of people, well, if I can just do right and I do all these things, have you consulted God? I, I remember hearing a story from a guy who was church planting, and in the middle of church planning, he had his church, it was growing to such a level and he was losing parking space. And as he was losing this parking space, there was no other places around. There was a few businesses or whatever. And he and he turns and he goes, I'm going to pray about God opening up some of these spaces here for us to buy like maybe a house where we can demolish it, basically put in a parking space. And he goes, So I begin to go to the Lord and I said, Lord, we need parking spaces. You've given us all these people, but Lord, we need parking spaces And and, uh, the Lord approached him and says, why don't you ask me what I want? And man, the guy was stood back and was like, never thought about it. (laughs) I never thought about what God wanted. It's always been about what I wanted or what I think is right or what I think God is saying. And for the first time, God approached him about what God wanted. Turns out God didn't want him to have any more parking space. God wanted him to pour in other leaders and build other churches. So he literally would go on. And the reason I was listening to this guy, because he was talking about church planning and He was talking about how God had basically allowed him to supplant uh, nine other leaders and build nine new churches where these people that were actually in his church could leave and go to the places that were five minutes from their home rather than driving 45 minutes across town. And so like God began to work on him. What do I want? Have you asked me? Have you thought about what I want for you this year? Have you asked me what I want for you? Or is it just what you want and you hope I bless it? I think obedience is listening to whatever God wants and then just simply obeying to whatever God says to do. So that's when I talk about doing what's right, that's, that's what I think of. So what is the Lord saying? I can tell you for me, He's telling me to help this next, next generation. For me, He's telling me to pursue the next generation, to have hope in the next generation, to build up, to set up, to equip, to teach, to disciple the next generation. And how do I know? Because God has born a passion in me. It's like I said, when I looked out uh, uh, and I saw all the students missing, I went home and I couldn't even talk to my wife. I was like, I want to, hey God, hey God, right? I I couldn't even talk about it. There was this deep, deep passion seated within me of why are they missing? Where are they? Where are they? With everyone that goes missing, that's a day of our future cut short. And God birthed this passion in me. I hurt for them. I weep for them. I hunger for them. I dream for them. I believe in them because God believes in them, and guys, so should you. There's evidence actually of teenagers doing amazing things all over the Bible. I know that sounds crazy, but it's true. Um, I, I was thinking about this as I approached today, of what I wanted to talk about, and, I, and as we are moving towards this building that's going to engage the next generation to teach and train and disciple and, and all these things and lead our community in this effort, right, this, this, uh, this abandonness of what is here, right, because with all the churches we have here, the most we can muster up was a couple hundred kids out of 2,200 students. Uh, there's a big bucket out there we're not even fishing in, guys. And I as I begin to think about them and who's missing, I started to think about other teenagers in the Bible that were overlooked, but when they came to the light, or when we see them put in the context of the scriptures, they shined. And we forget that they're teenagers. Quite honestly, we, juxta- we juxtapose adulthood upon them, because we can't see teenagers doing this, right? Because most teenagers have short attention spans. Like it lasts like 10 minutes and then already they'll zone me out or, or, you know, you've got to learn some things when dealing with, uh, uh, with teenagers, you've got to learn how to, how to talk and how they, so when we see teenagers, by the way, I was, I was every bit of that, if not mean or, you know, to, to anybody who tried to tell me what was right or wrong anyway, um, when we see teenagers, we don't, we don't think that these could actually be people God could use in such a bigger fashion. But if we look back to the Old Testament, and even the New Testament, it's full of teenagers that God trusted with amazing things. For instance, what about Esther? Anybody ever think of Esther? Like anytime I ever watch a movie, you know, ever notice like Esther's like 28? Like she's like this grown woman, full-figured woman that's just all grown up, and she's just got the wisdom of the world and all this stuff. But the truth of the matter, that most likely, according to Scripture, that Esther was 14 years old when she was picked right she's this young teenage girl w- with literally the fate of her race on her shoulders she has to make wise decisions or she's going to face death herself right she she's actually when she's faced with the decision to keep her mouth shut about what's happening with her people and just enjoy life and speak up uh, and possibly die she actually makes the right call Man, we have a hard time, I think, trusting teenagers to make the right call. You know, I I tried to explain to my daughter uh, uh, and and to any teenagers when I set boundaries or we set rules, right? There's the cliff where you fall off and die. I don't put the fence at the cliff. I back it up like a mile so that when you jump the fence and go, I totally did it and didn't die. I know because I backed the boundary up so far away from the place that you would die from that when you did what you were rebellious, right? You didn't make a mistake just yet because I backed the boundary up so far. That's what we do, we, we, we set all these things up, but we look at Esther. Here's this young, this young woman who is now has the fate of the entire Jewish race on her hands. And if she speaks up and says anything and it doesn't go right, that could be the end of her entire race upon her hands. Listen, the, the cool thing is this decision that she makes to go ahead and pursue trying to save the Jewish race and trying to stop a lot of these things from happening would ultimately, ultimately lead to the entire Persian nation to practice Judaism. Think about that. And the Jews, they prospered in the land because of it. Matter of fact, one of my favorite scriptures in all of the Bible is found at the back end of Esther where it says the fear of the Jews became so great that everyone converted to, to Judaism. I would rather serve their god than die serving something else. It was just so the fear of the Jews were so great. God had given them influence, God had given them power all through this little 14 year old girl the matter of fact the reason you see the three Persian astronomers searching for the king of kings the wise men as we call it is because of Esther because of the change that had happened in Persia that they had all these writings and scripts that they had there and these these men from the orient right come over searching for the son of God that that's all because the Persian nation uh, has uh, radically changed thanks to a teenage girl And here's the other thing, guys, and let me remind you, right? Because I'm not preaching to teenagers this morning. Remember that Esther was influenced by the former generation. She had someone speaking into her ear. As a matter of fact, it was her uncle, Mordecai. Remember the story, right? He invested into her. He poured into her. He mentored her. He he encouraged her to believe that God could use her. Remember the scripture in Esther 4, uh, 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 verse 14? If you keep quiet at a time like this, Esther, deliverance and relief for the Jews will arise from some other place, but you and your relatives will die. Who knows, he tells Esther, if perhaps you were made queen for such a time as this. The older generation now is having to look to this teenage generation and go, Maybe God has placed you in this position for such a time. I'm going to believe in you and trust that God is going to use you and something radically is going to happen. What an what a awesome moment there. Mordecai helped her see that, that the season in, was, that was in front of her was a good one and one that he encouraged her to where he, she should make right choices. Sound familiar? It's what we do to all teenagers. Please make right choices. Make good choices. What about David? David we 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 see david as king we see david as making mistakes as a grown man and coveting somebody else's wife but but his whole journey starts as a 16-year-old shepherd boy everyone knows the story of david God has God basically seen to that, and we talk about him slaying the giant all the time. It's this spectacular event, this supernatural event. This 16-year-old boy takes on this grown man that's like four feet taller than him, and he's going to slay the giant. And the irony of the whole story is that David was really too young to be at the battle. As a matter of fact, he was actually there delivering basically sandwiches to his brothers. That's about what they trusted David with. He's too young to be at battle to be at war right because the the sounding call for war and warriors had already happened they're sitting on the hillside being scared of this one giant who's calling out anybody got a, is there any champion in israel here comes this kid who's told to hey go take your brothers some sandwiches they're probably going to be hungry all right, I'm going to show up over there. He takes him some sandwiches because he's not considered tall enough or big enough to fight or do anything with. They don't look at him as somebody with ability or somebody that has any kind of wisdom towards these things. But he goes out. He does it. And as any boy, right, he's curious. He could hear the giant talking. I mean, you know the whole story. Listen, some, some, some of this, it, I, all I could think of is praise God some teenagers don't know any better. Right? I mean, like he doesn't understand. Like the, I don't think he understands the, the the seriousness of what's happening. Right? That that some teenagers don't know what they can't do. Amen. I mean, seriously, they, they 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 haven't been told yet by a bunch of adults who felt the sting of life and sin. They still believe that these things, impossible things, can be done yet. Right? The longer we live, it seems the harder it becomes to walk by faith. Well, that's all right. You ain't got to amen that one, but that's true. That's true. The more we feel the sting of life, the more we feel the sting of sin, the sting of consequences, man, it becomes harder and harder and harder for us to exercise faith and to believe in something we know to be impossible, something we've witnessed to be impossible. 16-year-old boys don't take on like 30-year-old men who've been battle-tested. That's don't happen. You're sending your kid to die. We would tell everybody that. We would tell everybody that. Reality basically taught all the men on the hill that they knew their limit. They wasn't got to go out there. Like I can pry pretty good, but I don't think I'm taking on a nine foot giant out there. That's not going to happen. They they had that, but David David's got this idea of God in him. I mean, it's almost to the point you would call him like like Listen, I know God's a big God, David, but like the reality is is that he's nine foot tall. You're probably like four foot eight, five foot tall. You know, you're this little ruddy kid that you just came, you brought us sandwiches, bro. You don't even got a sword. I don't know if you've noticed, but there's no Kevlar vest. There's no helmet. There's no, like, uh, armor on you. you. You don't have any battles previously to your name uh, as far as, like, war or military-style battles. But in First Samuel, David's response in chapter 17, he says, Don't worry about this Philistine, David told Saul. I'll go fight him. Yeah. <laughs> and, and what's Saul? Saul is us. He goes, Don't be ridiculous. That's what, that's what Saul's reply is. Don't be ridiculous. There's no way you can fight this Philistine and possibly win. You're only a boy, and he's been a man of war since his youth. Let's just call it for what it is. Is what Saul, Saul is being the practical adult here. David's like, I got this. No, you don't. You don't. But David, the naiveness of his teenage years, what he's able to do in, 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 this, in this blind faith, right? But David persisted. I've been taking care of my father's sheeps and goat, he says. And when a lion or bear comes to steal a lamb of the, from the flock, I go after it with a club and rescue the lamb from its mouth. If the animal turns on me, I catch it by the jaw and I club it to death. I've done this to both lions and bears, and I'll do it to the pagan Philistine too. For he has defied the armies of the living God. The Lord who rescued me from the claws of the lion and the bear will rescue me from the Philistine. Saul finally consented. All right, go ahead. That's how I see that. I don't see it as like, all right, like i really behind that story. I'm like, all right, go ahead. I can't stop you. You're so stubborn and you're so, this is so matter of fact for you that God is going to do this for you that I can't win this conversation. So I'm just going to give myself to it. And may the Lord be with you, he says, as he sends him out. Right? Come on. The bullheaded quality that makes teenagers so sure of themselves actually comes in handy when it comes to believing in the Lord. Oh, how I wish we could see some of the qualities redeemed for the Lord that we think are bad. Like I'm going to tell you, for instance, one of the things that uh, I've talked about this in before, but it bears repeating. Uh, I have a strong will. I'm a strong will kid, grew up a strong will kid, always in trouble, always, uh, uh, you know, the kind of kid that we I remember. We had a female principal and she, she, you know, we we got paddlings back in the day. They put out this board, you know, they had a whole torture device for it and everything. They drilled holes. They wanted aerodynamics. They thought they engineered how to discipline kids, right? And and she would give swats, and I remember like we would laugh at her, like ah, you know, like we, you're not going to break me, you know. And I was that kind of kid, like I get strong willed, and you're not going to, and I and I had a you know big mouth, and uh, uh, over the years, the irony is my, my mama said, you know, you 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 had a big mouth as a kid. I said, you know what taught me how to stop that big mouth? Right? Is when kids punched me in the mouth. That stopped my big mouth real quick, you know. It's something I that that handled it there. There are some things, there's some attributes where that strong will, though, is paid off. Now, as a kid, strong will, it's unbridled. And when it's unbridled, it's dangerous and it's a nuisance and it makes us mad and angry and everything else. But you know who else has strong will? Usually businessmen do if they're going to stay at it for any length of time. They persevere through tough times. They persevere through hardships, right, to make their business work. They believe it can work even when nobody else can say, hey, man, you should probably get out of the market right now. No, dude, I'm telling you, we can survive this. We can make this happen, da da and, and they have enough strength about them and their will to accomplish some things. They also, when when you need to press through something, you know, for me in the Marine Corps, where it helped me out a lot in the Marine Corps, when I needed to push through on things, when I'm having to run where I don't think I can run any farther, and I'm, I'm stubborn enough and strong will enough that I can force myself to do things that I honestly don't feel like I should should be able to do but that my strong will carries me farther now listen that strong will in the hands of a teenager is drives you nuts amen but but in an adult it can be an amazing concept in a a, matured in a in a place of wisdom a strong will can go a long ways you know when we see it in a kid we go that's a bad kid when we see it in an entrepreneur we go amazing it's funny how that works Right? The irony, I used to get in trouble all the time for how much I talk, and then the irony today is I talk all the time now, and God's called it and said, that's my gift. It's funny today how we mix a lot of the things up, man, that, that teenagers have a lot of giftings that when redeemed by God will be powerful for the kingdom. Until then, they're nuisance to us. I get it. Until then, it's annoying to us. Until then, it's a struggle, right? But when it is, the, the, the Young girl I counsel uh, that's in Kansas right now, Uh, one of the things uh, that I always called her when I was teaching her at Faith Academy, I always called her my favorite. Today, when she signs her letters to me that she she writes to me, she signs it your favorite every time, right? And the kids would come up to me and go, why is she your favorite? I was like, because she reminds me of me. Like, she's horrible. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Yeah, she is, man. She's got a mouth on her that needs to be punched, right? But she's a girl. It's probably not going to happen. We gotta we gotta figure out a way around that. We gotta love her. We gotta figure out how to but this strong will that she has that seems to break her mom, break her dad, and break everybody else that's around her that drives her that drives everybody nuts, I see myself. I see if God can redeem that quality, she might be the most powerful preacher, the most powerful evangelist or women's leader or missionary that you've ever seen. And if we don't stick with someone like that, if we don't see the potential in them and stick with them and stay with them and pour into them and teach and trust that God's gonna do something miraculous there then what are we going to do? Give them up to become the devil's work? By the way, if you, don't, if you forget, when David became so powerful and he was using this stubborn, this bullheaded, the Lord will deliver me from everything and was conquering all the enemies of the, of the Jews, right? And remember Saul gets jealous. What happens? Where does he go? To the enemy. And then David takes the skills that God gave him to work for the enemy of the Jews. And I'm going to tell you if we don't invest in the next generation and see past some of their issues, right? I know we see them unredeemed, but if we don't start having a faith, literally seeing by faith their issues, those, some of those things redeemed and seeing them for what they can be, they will take their gifts. The enemy will say, I'll receive you just as you are. I'll use your gifts to, 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 for all the things you want them for, which is selfishness and everything else that comes from being young, right? And the enemy will use our kids and use the gifts that God gave them and things that should have never been asked to do. That's why it's important to to, we got to lay hold of the next generation. You think it's rough right now in the political world. You better lay hold of the next generation or it's just going to get worse. Make no mistake about that. How about Josiah? Now, everybody remembers Josiah as the boy king, right? Who's read the he's eight years old when he when uh, he he takes over the kingdom. And everybody thinks that uh, when he changes everything in the kingdom, that he's still eight years old. That's not actually what happens. As a matter of fact, uh, he's not even a teenager uh, when he first takes over the kingdom. He's unlearned, he's ignorant, but he's got all this power. He's an eight-year-old with the power of the president. Terrifying. Um, however, there was a man who watched him grow up and saw potential in what he could be. So at eight years old, he hadn't yet heard anything of the gospel or anything of the Old Testament, anything of the scrolls. Matter of fact, 10 years would go by, he would turn 18 and then something would happen. In 2 Kings chapter 22, it records in the 18th year of his reign, right, King Josiah sent Shaphan, son of Azaliah, and grandson of Meshulam, the court secretary to the temple of the Lord. Hilkiah the priest said to Shaphan the court secretary, "I found the book of the law in the Lord's temple." Then Hilkiah gave the scroll to Shaphan, and he read it. Shaphan also told the king, "Hilkiah the priest has given me a scroll." So Shaphan read it to the king, and when the king heard what was written in the book of the law, he tore his clothes in despair. So, from the young man growing up into a teenager, hearing the word. And all I can think of is like he's radically changed in that moment, right? It says he falls down and he's like repentative and he's, he's remorseful. And, and I, I, I'm wondering if you remember that feeling you got when the light bulb of Jesus Christ came on in your heart. Now can you imagine that happening to the president of a nation? Can you imagine something like that? Something radically shifting the leadership power. Josiah would become one of the greatest kings in history. In history, matter of fact, there's a place called the king of the... It's called the, uh, the, the tombs of the kings. And there's only three kings in there because the rest were too wicked. They're not good enough to put in there. And the three kings that are in the tomb of the kings are David, Solomon, and Josiah. See, David set the bar. Josiah is so far away from King David that he says... Uh, the, the weirdness to me is that everybody's put on the platform. So anybody that comes after David it either says they were like their father David or they were not like their father David. The platform was set by the young man who would grow into king and then everybody else is either as good as he is or not. So from teenager, from young man to great leader, all thanks to this older gentleman in his life this, uh, 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 who's able to serve under this younger leader, <laughs> right? And be okay with serving underneath such a young leader and pour into such a young leader. I think about, think about there's no story that we're going to talk about here that where there wasn't some type of mentor. David had Jonathan who was a little bit older than him and they were like, they were like brothers and he mentored him for the kingship. Make no mistake, when he put his, uh, the, the symbolic gesture of when Jonathan clothed him in the prince's garment, you know, I mean, come on. It was symbolic right there. Like Jonathan was teaching him the ways of being a king. Esther had Mordecai. If if we go down all these lists, you're going to see that the one thing every one of these young people had in their life was an older person helping them go on their path. Well, how about the New Testament, right? Let's let's kick into the New Testament. That's the Old Testament. It's easy. A lot of those stories are out there. We have a lot of data out there. Luke chapter 1 introduces us to a teenager that God is going to give the most important task of all, the birth of his son. So they believe Mary to be somewhere around uh, 14 years of age, uh, uh, around when she's pregnant with Jesus. Like right now, listen, us not lie, when we see somebody 14 years of age, we're like crisis center, right? I mean, that's crazy to think of now, right? But that's like the, the, the respect. That's why it's no shock to us that Esther would be so young. It's no shock in this day and culture uh, that 14 would be that age. Luke chapter 1, verses 30 through 33 says, Don't be afraid, Mary, the angel told her, for you have found favor with God. At 14, you have found favor with God. You will conceive and give birth to a son. You will name him Jesus. He will be very great. Will be called the Son of the Most High. The Lord God will give him the throne of his ancestor David. He will reign over Israel forever, and his kingdom will never end. God trusted the Savior of the world with a teenager. Get, wrap your mind around that one. She would go on to mother... Take care of the Son of God, ultimately help push him into his ministry. The Bible records that during her time of pregnancy, though, who helped her? Well, she spent a lot of time with Elizabeth, who was older than her considerably, pregnant herself. Can't help but think, man, that would have held a godly influence there, right? A godly woman around helping her embrace the purpose of her part to play in God's bigger story. Right. There's listen, it's, it's not, it's, it's nothing new here. Like what's going to take place. Even if we build something for the next generation, there's no way it can exist without you. They need somebody to believe, to believe in them. They need somebody that will just share their wisdom with them and the things that they've learned. They need somebody to be the bedrock of their life. The moral compass, so to speak. I remember telling you when I first got saved, uh, uh, I was such uh, an awful individual and so wicked in my heart and, and, and things didn't bother me like they bother me today, you know, under Jesus. But one of the things I always said was so attractive about joy. Joy was always my moral compass. I could come back to joy and know this is what's right and this is what's wrong. And it would sound so easy to say, uh, my wife tried to say it to me last, uh, a couple nights ago about Rachel. She says, you know, Rachel's just like you. She just wants to do what's right. And if, she, if she'll hurt inside if she can't do what's right. She, she will throw off the things that she wants because she wants to do what's right so bad. And I go, I am not like that. That may be who God has created her to be and thank the Lord that he changed my life. So that's the influence she saw in her life. But I don't ever think of myself like that. I know deep-seated of who I am before Jesus Christ. Before Jesus Christ, I'm this tyrant of a man who doesn't care, right? But I had people speaking into my life. Joy was one of them, but then it became her grandfather, who was a pastor, began to speak in my life. My brother-in-law, who's believing in Jesus, began to speak in my life. And and I can tell you right now, one of the great influences in my life is a guy named Earl Adams, who's passed away now. But uh, uh, in his 70s, coming to his house and sitting with him, Uh, um, in my early 30s and just sitting with him for lunch and just listening to whatever story he wanted to tell and listening to his wisdom and listening to the things he would say and sitting underneath other pastors that had pastored for a long time and just listening to them and just being with them. And I didn't have to say anything. I just wanted to soak up anything that they could say. I needed that older generation to pour into me. I remember how hard it was to look for a mentor. I remember looking for so long that I just gave up on it. And the funny thing is when I gave up on it is when I found it. Funny how that works, Mary had Elizabeth to pour to, to pour into her, and that's what that's that's what it takes to survive by the way that's how the church is formed when two people gather together, begin to exalt the name of Christ and press forward in hope and all these things right? What about Timothy right? The great misconception, actually, in the book of Timothy is that when Paul exhorts Timothy in 1 Timothy 4.12 to don't let anyone think less of you because you're young, we think that Timothy is some kind of super young, possibly even a teenager, because that's all the time when I hear that scripture being thrown out. But that actually isn't the case. As a matter of fact, by the time this statement is made to Timothy, he's actually close to 30. 30. However, because most people look to some uh, uh, look to someone older when it comes to leading, and because generally most older people have lived a little bit, they got experience, right? And so when Paul's talking to Timothy, he's saying, listen, I know you got some people in your church, man, that are wise. You got some guys that have lived and got more experience than you in some of these things, but don't let them, don't let them think less of you just because you're young. You got a lot of spiritual wisdom, you got a lot of spiritual knowledge, Timothy. You're ready to, your gift is ready, you're ready to lead, you're ready to do these things, right? But Paul also had been discipling Timothy since he was 16 years old. And before that, Timothy had other godly influences. Listen to this. It's not just Paul. Okay, man, it's Paul. Timothy's great because of Paul. No, no, no. It doesn't start with Paul. Paul says he just fanned the flames of what was already there. Let me tell you who put it there. Second Timothy 1, verse 5 and 6. I remember your genuine faith. Paul's saying this to Timothy. I remember your genuine faith. For you share the faith that first filled your grandmother, Lois, and your mother, Eunice. And I know that same faith continues strong in you. That's why I remind you to fan into flames that spiritual gift God gave you when I laid my hands on you. Praise God for mothers and grandmothers. Amen? That's what I'm saying. I mean, like... Timothy is born because this this idea of what this preacher is born from a good mom and a good grandmother. and, And then Paul comes along and goes, Man, I just fanned the flames of that thing. They started the fire and I just fanned the flames. So I can't take credit for the work. The work was there. I just built on their work. That's what he's saying. He's giving them credit for the things that they had done, right? This is the legacy of Timothy's household that it isn't just, it's three generations now. It's Timothy. Go back to his mom now, now to the grandma. Three generations of Christians right there, right there. This godly character and gifting is already in their heritage. And Paul just lets it burn even brighter. What started as a 16 and as a zealous teenager turned into a pastor of the church of Ephesus. And can I tell you something? That church becomes such a spiritual front And spiritual front line, that that what is birthed from the church of Ephesus? The armor of God. I'm going to send the youngest pastor i got to go fight the hardest battle I have. That's crazy talk. It's crazy talk. But then again, we've been reading about the Old Testament. Seems like the young men, that's what they do. They go into fights, the unwinnable fights. Because it isn't wisdom to go to the unwinnable fight. (laughs) You need somebody who's a little bit bullheaded, strong-willed, and believes by faith it can be done. You almost need a dreamer. And then if we look outside the Bible, and we look at this generation, we see a kid like Easton, Easton his name is, a, it's a Louisiana name, Easton LaChapelle. He's 17 years old. And I know you don't know who he is. He isn't in the Bible. Actually, he's kind of nerdy, not so much into sports. Uh, he, he found his niche by playing with Legos, Right? Uh, It turns out that at age 14, he made a robotic hand with Legos and some fishing string, and he found out that's pretty cool, right? Now, he takes this stuff to a science fair, and at the science fair, he meets this 7-year-old girl, and she's handicapped. She has a prosthetic hand, and when he begins to talk to her about the prosthetic hand, it takes like $80,000 to buy an actually functional hand that she could possibly use, and that's crazy money, Right? And he's floored by that. So he begins to task himself. He decides or he's basically inspired to make a cheaper prosthetic that could do more than what everything was out there. And he would try to do it for under $1,000. And as he drew close and started to get some practicing uh, 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 prototypes and things like that and really started to make it happen, uh, he caught the eye of NASA. Since then, NASA's decided that they needed him on their uh, Robonaut team and uh, at 17 now he has worked for NASA already and has that on his resume. 17 years old. These are the kids that are out there. These are the kids waiting to be found. You know, one of the things when I did youth ministry here, uh, I didn't get a lot of sports kids. One of the things I realized real quick, because I want to build disciples and I want to make disciples and I want people that are crazy and passionate over Jesus above all things. I love football, I love sports, I love everything else, but, but there's only so many kids in sports and most of those, those kids usually... Sport, great thing about sports is that usually sports kids have parents that are usually somewhat involved with their kids. So you see a lot of those kids going to churches, things like that. I never went after those kids. I wanted the kids that could be at church no matter what. Like, oh, I got a game, so I'm not going to be at church this. Hmm. I didn't ever tell them no because I had some athletes in, in our, in our uh, group, but one of the things that I did is I went after every kid that had nothing else to do, right? Because there's a ton of them. There's a whole bunch of them in school. That are not active in anything, which is probably, by the way, why they struggle with a lot of other things. But it's kids like this that are sitting around playing with Legos. Probably not going to tell a lot of people they are, but they got a gift. They're smart. They got a gift, man. And somebody's invested into this kid. The parents poured into this kid because what did they do? They equipped him with the tools that it would take to learn how to do this stuff. So much so that their kid would catch the eye of NASA. Can I tell you, there's a lot of people trying to work for NASA, much less be recruited by NASA at 17. These kids are out there. Or how about Mary Grace Henry? She's 18 years old, but when she was just 12, she decided that she wanted to uh, uh, invest her time in underprivileged girls by funding their education in any way that she could, right? So she asked for a sewing machine for her birthday, and she taught herself how to make these reversible headbands so that she could sell at school, and she she had made enough uh, that she would send, like through a program or through an outlet, she would send a girl... Uh, To education she would paid enough that she could afford a girl to get an education and she had sent that but it didn't stop for her there right. She begins to see the power of what she's doing and she thinks she can help more so since then she's since then she's gone on to make a uh, 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 her own. Nonprofit 501 uh, called Reverse the Course, where she's made thousands of hair accessories. And at this point, she has paid for 66 girls to finish out their education in places like Kenya and Uganda and Paraguay and Haiti. Started at 12, got her own 501 at 18. It's crazy talk. When she won an award called the World of Children Award, she said educating a girl can reverse the course of her life and change the course of a community and a country. Man, there's powerful teenagers out there. I can't tell you how many teenagers I've seen growing up to be ministers or how many I've seen grow up to be missionaries or prophets or preachers or teachers and so much more. I've watched them over the years. Not all of them were born in the church either. As a matter of fact, many weren't in the church at all when I first met them. They came at 15 and their parents didn't go to church. But you know what? After a couple of years, they got their parents saved and started bringing their parents to church. I've seen it over and over. They were all evangelized to by their peers. I know a kid right now. I always tell their story because I think it's one of the best stories I've ever heard. I saw, I saw this young kid. His name is Alex Roman. And Alex Roman, he came to church because he wanted to be with Jessica Powell. He'd probably laugh if he hears this. And he started coming all the time to be with that. But Jessica Powell was in leadership in the youth department. So she was a student leader. And the student leaders weren't allowed to date. But Alex didn't care. If we can just be friends, that's fine because that's how much he liked her. And so Alex would keep coming and keep coming. Eventually, Alex gets saved. And uh, he becomes a student leader. And then now on both their parts, they recognize the purity for God. On both their parts, they refuse the date because they're sold out to Jesus first and foremost, and they're following the leader. They're following their leader and their mentor, and and as it's funny because they they would come and they would they would do things uh, like come to. Uh, we, you know, we had like a fall festival there at the church there, and they would come, and Alex is Hispanic, so he, would, he dressed up like Ricky, and Jessica, she's white, so she would dress up like Lucy, and, and everybody's like, how are they not married? I mean, like, how are they not together? How are you guys managing not to date? Oh my gosh, you're so cute, right? They would later go to college, and I remember it being funny where uh, my mentor, who was their youth pastor and their mentor, began to tell him, like, listen, Alex, uh, student leadership day's over. Like, you're in college now, bro. You're an adult. It's time to take that girl out on a date before she gets swept up right? Yeah, a couple of years later, they get married. Today, they're in ministry together out there in Arizona. They handle an the entire uh, junior high ministry. Uh, and man, I, I mean, to see them at 15 and to see them now with two kids and doing ministry and being just excellent pastors, excellent pastors. I've seen these stories played out time and time again girls who came in who got their moms saved and their dads saved and then they went off to be missionaries for a year we supported one brandy Ballou. when i met brandy she was uh 15 years old about 16 17 that's when she finally started getting her mom pulled in and her mom started to come right by the time brandy's like 18 or 19 i remember her giving me a hard time because she's like i got my credentials before you did Always the, the, the you know, teenagers, you can count on them being a little bit uh, uh, com- competitive. And so, so we are we, uh, uh, always good friends. Well, she went off to Russia for a year, missionary in Russia for a while. She's got a husband and kid now, and they do young adult ministry now. And just, uh, I'm just amazed. I'm telling you, I've seen it over and over. They were, they were being called. All of them were being called. All, all of them were being encouraged by Adults. They couldn't have got where they were if it wasn't for older generation that saw into the next generation and led them there. And man, when I see them, that's when I think of, wow, that's how it works. And guys, we never see it when we're on the ground floor. When we're on the ground floor, we only see what's five feet in front of us. We can't see the future. But you guys know over time, you start to look back and go, wow, some of that was awesome. We were actually living in a cool time right there, and we just didn't see it all because we were so in the middle of it. And then you look back and wow, amazing. That's the cool thing about the next generation. But they need help from the former generation. They need help. Right? And that's what we're being called into. Into reaching the next generation. A Josiah generation. A generation that can restore things. A generation that can renew the call to reach the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. Because that needs to happen. So that's why we're going to build that's why we're going to build. We're going to build a place where the next generation can be mentored. Where they can be taught. Where they can be instructed in the ways of the Lord. Where they can have relationships. Right? Where they can be mentored. Our job is to put them on our shoulders so that they can see farther than we ever could. We're here to build a platform for them so that they can go where we, can, we couldn't go. They can see where we can't see, right? And In in the hopes that they'll reach who we could just never reach. And they could do what we couldn't do. And help will come. I can tell you that right now. Not because this is a good idea, because it's God's idea. Listen, I've never been interested in in a good idea. I always want it to be a God idea. All right? This isn't a mosaic thing either. This isn't a Jim Corsi thing either. This is a kingdom of God thing. We're not doing it for us. We're not doing it for everybody. We're doing it because God has asked us to. We're going to do this because they need it, right? God sees their need. God has heard their cry and He is sending us. One day, a day that we might not ever see with our own eyes will come when the next generation will do the impossible and reach the entire world with the gospel of Jesus so that God's word will be accomplished as it was written in Matthew 24, 14. And the good news about the kingdom will be preached throughout the whole world so that all nations will hear it and the end will come. That is our end goal, guys. And if we can't get it done, then we need to be responsible and do the things that it takes to set the next generation up for the success of it. Because God is what? Called us to it. I don't have to guess what God has called me to right here. It says it plain and clear to reach the ends of the world with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that mandate doesn't just exist to my generation. It exists to every generation. And I'm going to do the best I can at fulfilling it. But I'm also going to set up the next generation to fulfill it. Amen. And we will be like those found in the book of Hebrews in chapter 11. Where in verse 13 it says all these people died. Still believing what God had promised them, they did not receive what God. uh, They did not receive what was promised, but they saw it from a distance and they welcomed it. They agreed that they were foreigners. And nomads here on earth, obviously people who say such things look forward to a country that they can call their own. If they had longed for the country they came from, they could have gone back, but they were looking for a better place, a heavenly homeland. That is why God is not ashamed to be called their God, for He has prepared a city for them. Listen, I can't tell you what it's going to be like for the next generation. What I can tell you is that God has already dreamed over it, and God has sent us to do this, not for us, but for them. And I don't know what lies on the other side. You know what I do know is that it's a future and a plan that God has prepared. We are like in these these uh, men and women in the Book of Hebrews. We don't know what that land's going to look like. We have no idea what that promise is on the other side for the next generation. But our job is not to be there. Our job is to hope and dream for them to be there, and then to set them up with the success of being able to do so. Amen. This is who we are. We are those who are waiting for a pretty country, who are waiting for the hope that is far off. C. S. Lewis called it Aslan's country in the books Chronicles of Narnia. It's a green country, a green pasture where there's water and a place to be fed. And our job throughout all of this let's grab joy. Our job throughout all of this is just so simple, so simple. We don't have to make this hard. It's just to be obedient. That's it. It's not not difficult. It's just to do what he asks us to do. If obedience is preferred over sacrifice, then this goal is simple. Just do what he's asked us to do while believing that he has a plan and purpose and it's all being carried out through us. And then while we're walking in that purpose and while we're walking in that plan, others will join our cause. I can tell you, I received two uh, I received a message and a a phone call this week. All people who are not part of us that are excited about what we're doing and and couldn't stop talking about how desperate we need it. Others will join us because it's God. And it'll be a miracle. Remember how we first talked first couple years ago? We talked about whatever was going to happen and that no matter what, We wanted just a miracle. We wanted to be a part of a miracle so that we can say that it was all birthed in a miracle. Well, miracles mean impossible. (laughs) That's like asking, God, I want you to send us the impossible. If nothing frustrates anybody or nothing makes somebody more scared, it's the impossible. But the only way to get out of the impossible is to lean on God and have faith in God. Can I tell you, I'm believing we we should step into a fast. Now, I'm not going to call on it today, but I'm telling you, I'm going to get ready to preach into it. So get yourselves ready. Fast, whatever that means for you, whether it's food or whether it's something else. Man, for these days, it could be social media. That almost kills. How about your phone? Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I I think it's like glued to my hand half the time. I'm just being honest. I'm just being honest. You know, whatever that is. But I can tell you that, that we've reached the place where it's not a matter of what do we do. It's a matter of how do we get it done. And that I don't know all the details yet. What I do know is that I see people coming out of the woodwork to want to help. I know that we're in the middle of a God idea. We're in the middle of God's plan. We're in the middle of God's purpose. And I'm just going to trust Him. And all I'm asking from you is to do the same. Just trust Him. I didn't necessarily say trust me. You trust God. If you've got something to bring to the table in the way of wisdom, we are, ears are open. Because, man, I'm going to tell you right now, the same thing goes for me, it goes for teenagers, man. Everybody has something to bring to the table, man. And, And when we look back at the Old Testament and the New Testament, it's all influence. Everybody makes it forward with the help of someone else. When we move, we move together. I can't imagine a more greater view of the church than the mentor and the one being mentored. From generation to generation. That is the church. And that is what this building is going to be at the end of the day. Oh, is it going to look like all the churches today? No. Because the churches today are built for you. We're not building this for us. We're building this for them. We're building this for them. This will be the one selfless thing we can do. It's going to be a selfless thing, a selfless act. God has called on us to do that. I think, first of all, I don't know about you, but I feel privileged in that. I feel like God has given us a task that only we can do. I feel like this is a a hard thing to do, but I I, I feel like that God is he's in the middle of something. He's in the middle of moving and working, and he's a mystery, and I don't have it all figured out. But I'm on board. If you hadn't figured that one out, I'm on board. I'm all about the next generation. And just just know this, you're going to be hearing about it all month. We're headed into the unknown. That's where we're headed. We're headed into the unknown. I've never been here before. I have no idea what it's going to look like. No idea. I, I have ideas of what I want to call this building, but I can't settle on anything. I'm waiting to see what the Lord says. Is there something I should call this? Is there, is it, do I have this kind of leeway, God? I don't want to assume anything, so I'm just going to pray. I don't have to have the name right now. What I need right now is just the Holy Spirit to show up and continue to give me wisdom and good discernment. Amen? And I'm going to pray that for all of you. Let's worship real quick.
1: You know, I'm, I'm reminded, <clears throat> as I'm teaching our little kiddos in there, um, we talked today about how God makes us new, and God makes us, when we ask Jesus into our heart, we are different. We are made new. We made butterflies so that we could rem- remind ourselves that we were something, and now we're something new. And so, I just want to remind you of that, that if Jesus is in your heart, you are something new. You are a new creation to go out and tell the world about him. Lord, thank you. Thank you that I didn't deserve anything, and still you loved me. Undeserving, you came to me, and you restored me, and you made me new. We're holy.